What I want to get into, though, is our text of Scripture for this morning. As we are continuing on in our series through the book of 1 Kings. We have arrived uh, now at the section of 1 Kings in which we will sort of uh, go our separate ways, so to speak. We've ended our our season of of talking and examining uh, the reign of King Solomon. Uh, And here, as as we begin chapter 12, Solomon has deceased. He has gone on to, to be with his fathers, so to speak. But I think... What we have to keep in mind is that it would be very unwise to assume that just because Solomon is no longer alive, that he no longer figures into the story. And actually, in fact, I think much of what we are going to cover, especially this morning, but in all of the chapters to come, uh, are really uh, all about the repercussions of Solomon's decline. And actually, we're, they were still feeling the, the, the sort of aftermath of Solomon's uh, downfall for many, many generations to come. And this is most evidently present here in this chapter uh, through the reign of Solomon's heir, Rehoboam. You know, in, we, when we went through uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon makes this confession in chapter 2. In verses 18 and 19, he says this, that he hated all of his labor which he had taken under the sun. Why? Because I should leave it, Solomon says, unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be wise or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor wherein I have labored and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity, Solomon declares. And really what he is saying is actually lived out, is is born into real life here in this chapter. As Solomon uh, is, is no longer on the scene, all of the fruits of his labors are now being left to someone else. And who's to say what is to come of it? Who is to say... That, that, that the person that takes it over, his successor, will be a wise man or a fool. And here we see that lived out. We see that lived out here in this passage. So what I want to do this morning is just examine the first 24 verses of this chapter. and just Because uh, I want us to see uh, four, I think, really distinct lessons uh, from this chapter. All of which I think reveal one predominant truth. That is this, that that God can and does perform marvelous wonders in and with all of our waywardness and sin and strife. That all of those ups and downs, all of the wanderings, the waywardness, the rebellings, the failures, all of that folly, all of that God can do marvelous work with. Those are what we could say. Those are the raw materials that God performs miracles with. That sort of waywardness. That sort of wretchedness. That's what I think is on display here in this chapter. So really quickly. I want to go through this this morning. Uh, Lesson uh, number one is a lesson about heeding. A lesson about heeding. Notice verse one as we enter this chapter. Because what we have to see. Or let me just back up and say this too. Uh, as with many of these history, uh, history books, uh, there's always a lot of names and characters that we need to keep in mind. And it's, it's much like if you were to read uh, sort of the, the, the script to a play, you would have to get those, those little prefixed notes at the beginning that tell us who are all these characters and, and what are their motivations and why are they saying certain things throughout the course of the play. And much is what I think we have to keep in mind here. We have all these names and these characters and it's 
sometimes easy to gloss over them without realizing who they are and how they figure into the larger story. So anyways, what I want to do is just do that, is introduce some of these characters to get our bearings. Because notice what is going on here. And Rehoboam, verse 1, went to Shechem, for all Israel were come to Shechem to make him king. And it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, go down to verse 3, that they sent and called him. And Jeroboam and all the congregation of Israel came and spake unto Jeroboam. So we have all these names very quickly listed off for us. Of course, the one that stands out is Rehoboam. He is Solomon's son, the, the, the next, the, the promised king of Israel that would take the place of Solomon after his de- decease. And now he has come and he has assembled all of these elders together, all of the, the leaders of the house of Israel at this city noted here is Shechem. And here they are there to make the official coronation of Rehoboam as Israel's next king. And you might have some curiosity going off, some alarm bells, only because they are not doing this coronation in Jerusalem. It's not happening at the royal palace, the place where the king resides. It's actually happening somewhere else. It's happening in this city named Shechem. This, of course, ought to be interesting to you, only because Shechem is a very, very important city in the lineage and the history of Israel. It's not just because it's a neutral sort of city. It's sort of central between all of the tribes of Israel. It's not just because of its geographic location. It has a lot of historical significance. If you look throughout the first five books of your Old Testament, this name, this city, will come up a lot. Abraham and Jacob, they have connections to this, to this city, this location, this, this spot Joshua, of course, this is where he reaffirmed and renewed the covenant that God had made with Moses. He renews it here at this spot in in Shechem. Joseph's tomb, the patriarch Joseph, this is where his tomb was. This is where his body resided in the grave, which I think is an important detail to keep in mind. That fact about Joseph as we are introduced to our next character, this character Jeroboam. As it says there, and it came to pass when Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who was yet in Egypt, heard of it, for he was fled from the presence of King Solomon, and Jeroboam dwelt in Egypt. You might remember from uh, one of our sermons a couple weeks ago, in which we noted that Jeroboam was one of the ones that was suddenly found a lot of anxiety, and not just anxiety, animosity towards King Solomon's reign. And in fact, he ended up fleeing because of all of the harassment that he was making on King Solomon's court. You can find that in chapter 11, verses 26 through 28. He was one of the leaders of sort of the house of labor over the house of Joseph. And here... Uh, Or in that moment, actually let's just read those verses, verse 26 of chapter 11. And Jeroboam, the same guy, the son of Nabat and Ephrathite of Zerida, Solomon's servant, whose mother name was Zeruah, a widow woman, even he lifted up his hand against the king. Even he was uh, uh, in conflict against Solomon. And this was the cause that he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built Millo and repaired the breaches of the city of David, his father. And the man Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing the young man that he was industrious, he made him ruler over all the charge, notice, of the house of Joseph. 
You want to know why? That it's important that he's at this place where Joseph's tomb resided because one of the leaders, one of the, as we're going to be seeing here in a moment, one of the spokesmen who's speaking up against this new king is the leader of this very spot where he's standing. So here you have this moment. You have Rehoboam, the newly minted king, over a house of Israel that's a little bit tentative over this new guy. You have Jeroboam coming up who, is, who was not a friend of Solomon, not a friend of Rehoboam's dad. And here now he's being called back. Verses 2 and 3, that's just what's happening. The elders of Israel, they called Jeroboam out of Egypt. Hey, come and be our spokesperson. They want to get some of their grievances listed, some of their grievances heard. While this new king is still new, while he's still sort of green behind the ears, so to speak. Notice what he asks for. Verse 4, Jeroboam speaks up, perhaps a written message on behalf of all of the tribes. And he says, thy father, speaking to Rehoboam, made our yoke grievous. Now therefore... Make thou the grievous service of thy father and his heavy yoke, which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. Jeroboam is here. He's calling essentially for labor reform. Your dad, Solomon, uh, your dad, uh, Rehoboam, excuse me, your dad, he was a very grievous taskmaster. He was one that was wanting to be ruthless in terms of the, of the, the forced work that he uh, put upon the, all of the house of Israel. In fact, you can read about this in chapters 4 and 5. They detail the fact that Solomon, as soon as he was uh, crowned and, and made king, he divided Israel into 12 distinct districts and putting and put Put, uh, leaders in charge of each of those districts, from which he uh, he enlisted, he conscripted, so to speak, workers out of each of those districts, out of each of the tribes, except for one. None from the house of Judah, the house where the palace resided, the house of, so to speak, royalty. No laborers were called out from that house, from that district, which you might imagine led to some obviously fraught tension between the tribes as one is being favored among the rest, as one is being showed a little bit more uh, favoritism from the others. And of course, this isn't really that new. If you, if you read uh, the, the books of the Bible, you can sometimes notice that there is no small amount of tension between the tribes of Israel. They, didn't, they weren't always happily married, so to speak, in this peaceful kingdom. They experienced revolts and, and civil wars. And it, there was this sort of undercurrent of tension among them. And now, that's such as why Jeroboam is here saying, let's get our foot in the door. Let's, let's see if we can make a change. Let's see if we can make our circumstances and conditions a little bit better. Such as why Jeroboam is now speaking. Your dad... He treated us poorly. He treated us harshly. His yoke was a grievous yoke upon us, forcing us into labor, labor, almost like slave labor. And now he's he's making this an opportunity now for to let's let's have some reform under this new reign. And notice verse five. Because Rehoboam responds and he said unto them, depart yet for three days, then come again to me. And the people departed. So he takes some time. Let's Give me three days to think about what you're talking about. Give me three days to consider these requests. 
And he proceeds, Rehoboam does, to consult two groups of counselors uh, to sort of get wisdom on this situation. How should I deal with this? Notice verse 6. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them and answer them and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. He goes, first of all, this is one of the best decisions he makes in, the, in this narrative, we're going to find out. As he goes to, as the, I love how the King James words it, the old men, the elders, the, the wise sort of counselors that, as it says there, they were around his father. The same sort group of counselors that were around his father Solomon, that's who he goes to. Which is just sidebar. I wonder, as we noted a couple weeks ago, where's that scene of Solomon consulting these elderly men, these old wise sages? We never have it, but regardless, their advice to Solomon's son Rehoboam is serve the people. Take what they are saying, consider it, and serve them. Speak good words to them. We don't need to be taskmasters that are forcing people into obedience and allegiance through intimidation. They are saying, let's be servants. Their advice to him is basically model what you want to achieve. Be a servant leader, so to speak. This, I think, is very good advice. (laughs) Very good advice from these men who have, who have been there. They've, they've seen what intimidation, what leadership by force looks like. But as, it would, as you would have it, Rehoboam, he had pretty much made up his mind before he ever consulted these old men. Notice verse 8. But he, Rehoboam, forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him and consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. Before he had, I I, I imagine that Rehoboam was almost just checking off the box, so to speak, in terms of this meeting with these elderly guys. And actually he was much more interested in, in, in consulting these young guys that he had grown up with and seeing what they had to say. Because notice, notice verse 6. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And notice the change in verse 9 when he consults these younger guys. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people? Who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. He's sort of revealing his allegiance. He's separating himself from those old guys. And he's, con- he's aligning himself with these younger ones. Saying, how should we answer this predicament? And he opts to listen to them. And what advice do they give? Well, watch verse 10. And the young men that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but make thou it lighter unto us. Thus thou shalt thou say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins. And now whereas my father did lay on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. (laughs) These young men... 
They advise Rehoboam not to make any concessions. Don't, don't compromise. Don't listen to what the people are saying. Don't have an ear towards their complaints. Actually, you know what? To, in order to show your, your, your bravado, in order to show your leadership style, you need to double down on this intimidation method. I'm going to add to your yoke. I'm going to add to your labor. I'm going to add to your grievances. And you're going to listen to me no matter what. This is the advice of these these peers of, of Rehoboam. They're basically telling him to concede is weakness. To, to compromise in your right as king, that's to show that you, don't, that you can't really lead. Don't listen to them. Force them to follow you. And this plays right into Rehoboam's ego. (laughs) Right into what he wants to hear. Because notice in verses 12 through 15. He chooses. He chooses tyranny over stewardship. He chooses to lead by this. And inflicting this harsh sense of labor on the people. Instead of listening to them. And leading by service. Notice. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king had appointed. They come back again. Verse 13. And the king answered the people roughly. And forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him. And spake to them after the counsel of the young men. Saying my father made your yoke heavy. And I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips. But I will chastise you with scorpions. Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people. For this cause was from the Lord. That he might perform his saying. Which the Lord spake by Ahijah the Shilonite. Unto Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Here we have this moment. (laughs) This moment of, uh, of Rehoboam, this new king, listening to wrong counsel. He heeded the wrong advice. And it, it, you can't imagine the untold anguish, the untold uh, uh, violence that happened because of this moment. Because of this king's wrong sort of ear. His ear was bent to the wrong sorts of people. It leads to generations of untold rebellion and violence. Which leads me to my second lesson. He didn't listen. But also number two, a lesson about seceding. Because notice verse 16. He has made this speech. He has made this very public declaration. That no I'm going to be a tyrannical king. Much like my father but even worse. And you're going to obey me regardless. And it doesn't take long for the tribes of Israel. To get really hostile towards this new king. Notice verse 16. When all of Israel saw that the king hearkened not unto them. They did. He didn't listen to their, their grievances. The people answered the king saying, What portion have we in David? Neither have we an inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Now see to thine own house, David. So Israel departed unto their tents. They're hostile towards this speech. <laughs> From this appearing, the, the, the appearance of this sort of uh, 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 braggadocious king, this King Rehoboam, and his, as it says there, his rough reply to them. And they immediately sort of act on all of those long gestating tensions. Now this is sort of the last straw. All of those tensions between the tribes, they all come sort of boiling over here in this moment. And they act. They act upon what they had been feeling for so long. 
Because this king's answer, he's not going to change. He's not going to bring about reform. He's not going to treat us better than his dad did. He's not going to uh, give us any sort of allowances. He's going to continue on with the favoritism showed to Judah over the other tribes. This is, that, this is why that verse 16 is so significant. Because what are they saying? What are, what are they essentially declaring? What portion have we in David? What have we to do with the house of David? Essentially you could translate this. Down with the dynasty of David to your tents. Look out for yourselves. Every man for himself. We have no allegiances. We have no worries about anyone else. Look to yourselves. You can see how this moment leads everyone to be sort of uh, rather reclusive. They're not worried about anyone else. And they're not even worried, which I can see here in this moment. They're not worried about what God would do through this kingdom. What, have, what portion have we in David is almost a, a rebuttal against the promises that God had said he would do through the house of David. We have no portion with that. We have no interest in that. We have zero interest or inclination in keeping this Israel, this kingdom together. And nor do we have any care to uphold this Davidic standard. Instead, we're going to break away. Notice verse 17. They rebel. They secede from all of the other tribes. But as for the children of Israel which dwelt in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. And the king, Rehoboam, sent Adoram, who was over the tribute, and all Israel stoned him with stones that he died. Therefore King Rehoboam made speed to get him up to his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel rebelled against the house of David unto this day. This is a major moment in Israel's history. A very significant time period in the history of God's people. It marks this, uh, this horrible, grievous split and division of all the tribes. Which, which would lead to roughly two generations of bloodshed between God's own people. This, this moment of conflict. This moment where they divided. And to think that it was all about a king's foolish speech where he couldn't get out of the shadow of his own ego. This King Rehoboam who wanted to assert his dominance and not God's entrance. He wanted to assert his power and his might over listening to anyone else that might have words of wisdom for him. His speech led to the utter downfall of this kingdom. I like what... Alexander McLaren notes when he says that a dozen rash words brought about 400 years of strife and weakness and destruction. <laughs> Who could have imagined in that crowd that, um, of the unnumbered evils that would flow from that hour? <laughs> from this very moment, as McLaren just said, an unnumbered amount of evils flow. God's chosen people are at war. They have separated. They've divided. They have had the final straw. And they are at war with each other. God's people. But notice what happens 
next as we continue. A lesson about heeding, a lesson about seceding, and a lesson about conceding. Because notice what happens as all of these events are swirling. All of these, uh, re- this rebellion is going on. All of the rumors are now going about of how uh, all of God's people are divided. There's a new king being crowned. Verse 20, and it came to pass when Israel heard that Jeroboam was come again, that they sent and called him unto the congregation and made him king over all Israel. And there was none that followed the house of David, but the tribe of Judah only. So you have uh, the ten tribes that sort of align themselves with Jeroboam. And they quickly say, we're going to make our own king. We're going to make our own ruler. And it's going to be this guy, Jeroboam. He's been our spokesman. He seems like a good guy. So they crown him king really quickly. And the only people that align themselves with Rehoboam, the true king of Israel, is this, as it says there, the, the tribe of Judah only. And Rehoboam, though, responds by going back to Jerusalem and, and trying, and he tries there to assemble a, a new army to sort of make a counteroffensive against this revolt. Notice verse 21. And when Rehoboam was come to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah with the tribe of Benjamin, and hundred and fourscore thousand chosen men, which were warriors to fight against the house of Israel, to bring the kingdom again to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So they make their plans now. Let's, just, let's get an army together. Let's, let's get ourselves together. Let's, let's make a plan and we'll go back and we'll fight for this throne. This throne that is mine. This throne that I deserve. This throne that is rightfully mine to hold. This is the motivation of Rehoboam. This is sort of the, the vernacular in the minds of the house of Judah. This is what they want. Let's go back and take what's rightfully ours. But in comes... <laughs> Another character into this story. Perhaps the most unexpected character who carries, yes, the most unexpected message. Because notice what happens, verse 22. But the word of God came unto Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, Speak unto Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Thus saith the Lord. Ye shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. They hearkened therefore to the word of the Lord, and returned to depart according to the word of the Lord. In a single moment, this prophet, this man of God, Shemaiah, he speaks a message straight from God. And his message pierces the heart of Rehoboam and all of his men. Causing them to lay down their arms. Causing them to concede to defeat of the house of Israel. Causing them to pause and notice that we no longer should fight. This is, this is a really stunning turn of events. I'm stunned by every single character and by every single response in, uh, in, by all these characters. Because first of all, we have this, this guy, Shemaiah. He pops up on the scene as a, called a man of God. He's a prophet uh, from the house of Shiloh. And he comes up here and he has the, c- the courage, the gumption to declare this very unpopular message. Think again about what's happening. There's been this division, this schism in the house of Israel. Rehoboam is now fleeing for his life from the kingdom that he rightfully deserved to rule over. 
And he bans all of his followers. He bans the people that are in favor of his message. And the popular sentiment is what? Let's fight. Let's go get those guys and get back our kingdom. And here is Shemaiah proclaiming the exact opposite of all of that. He goes against all of the national interests in that moment, against what the popular message says, against what everyone is saying, this is what we should do. And instead, what does he concern himself with? With God's word. This word of God came to this man of God, and that reigned preeminent over anything else. No matter what the popular sentiment is in that moment, Shemaiah, the prophet, was listening and was concerned only with God's words. If only that were more true of Christians today. If only that were more indicative of what it means to be a Christian in today's day and age. When uh, God's words holds preeminence over anything that might be popular in national sentiment. Because this word abides forever and is true over all things regardless of the scandals that are going on. Regardless of the corruption that we see. This word holds preeminence. And we ought to, yes, in the, in the, the, the lineage of Shemaiah, we might say, ought to listen to this word. Have more of a concern for this word of God than anything else that man says. I'm surprised, yes, by this moment. Because it's, it's almost... So unexpected to have someone speak this sort of message. But also, I'm surprised by Rehoboam, who finally listens. <laughs> he finally concedes to some, uh, some more powerful wisdom. He hearkens, as it says there, to the word of the Lord, which is his best decision he makes in the whole chapter. He finally concedes. But I'm also, you know who I'm also surprised by in this, in this moment? I'm surprised by God. I'm surprised that God would allow Rehoboam another opportunity to listen to wisdom. You see, that's what this, what this message from Shemaiah is. It's a, it's a moment of grace for Rehoboam. Pause. Be patient. Think about what you're doing. Look at all the folly that you've already displayed. All of the foolishness and all the failure that's already on your record. Just pause for a moment. Pause for a moment and see what I'm doing. Because this... None of this was by happenstance. None of this was by coincidence. None of this was just random. None of this was just thrown out and this is how it is. All of this, all of these movings of all these peoples is governed by a single person. Which leads me to the last lesson. A lesson about succeeding. And I want you to notice... Notice a phrase in verse 15. But before I get there, this entire sequence, as we have been trying to emphasize, is just filled with egotism, self-absorption, and untold error on everyone's part. This whole thing is just a travesty. Alexander McLaren calls this whole scene a wretched story of selfishness wrecking a nation. (laughs) Everyone is self-interested, thinking about themselves. Rehoboam, 
His pride has been hurt. So now he has to reassert dominance. Jeroboam is out for power. He's making a play for more, uh, more control, more leadership, more ability in the kingdom. And all of the tribes, they're out for payback. All of those years of, of forcing us into labor, we want our due. We want uh, something to be given to us. Everyone is self-interested, which leads to this schism. But notice our whole outlook of this story ought to change by a single phrase. Notice verse 15. This pierces the bow of this story. Notice verse 15 where it says, Wherefore the king hearkened not unto the people, for the cause was from the Lord. All of this came about because God caused it to happen. And notice verse 24. The same thing is repeated. You shall not go up, nor fight against your brethren, the children of Israel. Return every man to his house, for this thing is from me. This thing is from me, the God of Israel. I've allowed this moment to transpire. This thing is from my hands. What looks like human folly and human deprivation on display is really just a stage for divine sovereignty to be seen all the more clearly. And to be sure, there's lots of folly, there's lots of foolishness, there's lots of guys acting like depraved sinners in this passage. <laughs> That's what the passage is. But we are made to see That over and above all of that stubbornness, all of that bravado, all of that ego that that causes this conflict between the nations. Over and above all of that human arrogance is the steady hand of God's providence saying this thing is from me. This thing I have caused for a specific reason. It's not random at all. It's not the random confluence of, of events. Uh, you know, we could perhaps examine history and look at all the, the political movings and all the social movings and how all of those uh, con, uh, conspired together to make this event what it was. And where now everything is, is being separated by this, this, this really uh, foolish king. And his, his stupid speech and the way that he speaks to these people that allows everyone to be separated. Yes. But also, God was over this moment. This thing is from me. That, as it says there, verse 15, that he might perform his sayings. That the certainty of all of his words and all of his promises might be seen by everyone. This is what I wanted to see. Because this is what God does. He performs wonders and miracles through all of the waywardness of human sin and strife. Through all of the wreckage of our rebellion. He stands above it all and says, I am Lord and sovereign over all of it. Our folly cannot foil his plans for this world. Our rebellion cannot derail what he wants to do through the message of redemption. And our sin, yes, it cannot overpower his grace. 
It cannot succeed where God's plans are always successful. Because you see, despite all of the the horrific debris and the atrocity that's left behind in the wake of this moment, God is unshaken by all of it. God's plans are always successful. Did you notice that? Notice. Notice who stays with Rehoboam, verse 19. There was none. None that followed the house of Israel, but the tribe of Judah only. And notice. Notice verse 23 where he says, there's a remnant Unto all the house of Judah and Benjamin, Benjamin and to the remnant of the people. <laughs> he had a plan over this. As we just sang a little bit ago. We have the lion of the tribe of what? Of Judah. He was sovereign over this moment. Over this moment of of seeming random atrocity. God was saying this is from me. That I may be revealed as what? The divine sovereign over all things. In front of whom nothing is more powerful. He is not caught off guard by human depravity. In fact... I would say this, that it's only in the smoldering crater of mankind's failure and folly that God begins his work of recreation. Only when we see that there's nothing that we can do for ourselves. And in fact, when we take things into our own hands, it always ends up in disruption and destruction and and, and, and grievous ends. And this is where he does his best work. It is said that God, to use the Latin phrase, creates ex nihilo. Which means he creates out of nothing. The reformer Martin Luther would say, only until we learn that we are nothing can he make something out of us. That's how the worlds were formed. God spoke and and worlds were created. He didn't take a mishmash of weird goo that was uh, pre-ancient stuff and make something in it. He spoke and worlds were existent and light was created and life was now being able to live. But such is what he does with you and me too. New new creatures we are called by scripture. And we are new creatures precisely because in the barren nothingness of our sins. He comes and he says I will make you new. And he creates something new out of all of that nothingness of our death and rebellion and sin and strife. This is what God does. This is his bent. He creates out of nothing. So that what? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So that he may be given the glory. You see in the putrid aftermath of this moment. As we already noticed. He was keeping his word. He was sovereign over the tribe of Judah. From whom our true savior will come. Therefore. There are moments in our lives that might seem very similar. Almost almost like it's camouflaged. How can we see that God is reigning over this? If you talked to anyone in the house of, of Judah in this moment and told them that this thing was from God, I guess 
I would probably say that they would laugh in your face. (laughs) Are you kidding? How can this thing be from God? How can this thing be good? Everything that we thought that the house of Israel stood for is now ruptured and has been taken out of our hands. I want to ask how many times you might have said the same thing in the last year. How can this be good? And yes, we have to declare, even this is from me. Even this is from God's hands. This isn't out of the bounds of his sovereignty. It's not somehow outside of it. It's not somehow just beyond his reach. And he's not in control of all of these days. Every single one of it from the end of time uh, till from now to the end of time. Every single day is in the hands of our provident and sovereign God. Nothing is outside of them. Nothing has happened that is beyond his reach. And in fact, his bent is always to turn what seems like garbage into glory. That's what he wants to do. To to transform all of the wastelands into sanctuaries, as we talked about last week. To turn all of the brokenness that is represented by our sin and strife and folly and foolishness. To turn all of that into beauty, into the beauty of his holiness. And to turn death into life. You might say that in this moment, what was lofted up and exalted as the quote Davidic standard was all but dead. What portion have we in David? And what is God going to do? He's going to raise up one. (laughs) Raise up one who is the true son of David. And this, I think, this chapter, and knowing how, quote, the story ends, this to me is the the best portrait of that oft-quoted verse in Romans, that he works all things for good according to his purposes. Yes, even the disruption of his own people. He eventually makes it good. He works all things together for good according to whose purposes? His, not ours. It's his purposes, the sovereign Lord over all things. He's working them out. Yes, even now in 2021, he's working them out for his sovereign ends. So that he is always seen as the glorious, successful, sovereign God over all things. I have had to ask myself on several occasions, God, how are you going to succeed here? It looks like you're, you're, you're putting up a lot of odds against you. He, I think that's what God does sometimes. He stacks the odds against himself so he sees as one who is way more powerful than we could ever imagine. What's, what's more at odds With the house of David than the house of David being split up and broken and fractured. What's more at odds than the current state of the American church? Where we are constantly infighting. Constantly at each other's throats. (laughs) Constantly worried and fretted over future days. Because of who is in a certain office in Washington. And yet, what do we see and what are we told from Scripture? This thing is from me. That moment was, and this moment is too. 
All of your days are being held together by this provident God who is sovereign over all things. No, it doesn't always make sense. But the truth of scripture is that he is always successful where we always fail. He always succeeds because he is sovereign. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.